0: Jessica Bednar started her legal career in family law court, and then she took what she learned about client experiences to the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, a Chicago Bar Foundation incubator that helps lawyers form innovative businesses that are cost effective for consumers of all incomes. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, Jessica and I will be talking about her new job at the Institute for the Advancement of American Legal System and her thoughts on designing client experiences. And if you want to hear more on this topic, she'll be discussing it at the upcoming ABA Tech Show, which runs March 1st through March 4th in Chicago. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. The first question I like to ask guests is when did you know you wanted to be a lawyer and why? <laughs> so
1: this is kind of a funny question to me because the answer, like the short answer is that I'm, I'm actually not sure that I've gotten there yet or I'm not sure that I've had that moment, I, which is probably a weird response. So Wrong I'll give answer. you the longer answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> so here's the longer answer. The reason I say that is I didn't grow up in a family with lawyers. I didn't really know much about the practice of law when I was growing up. And Of course, at some point I took, you know, one of those tests that evaluates what might be some good career paths for you and law was one of them. But for whatever reason, I didn't gravitate towards that. What I was really gravitating towards was business. And I think that really just came from my dad. He had he had a strong interest in business. He had an MBA. He worked at an insurance company and just really had an interest in small business and entrepreneurship. So I always just wanted to go into business. And that's what I ended up getting my undergraduate degree in. And then upon graduation is really when um, I had to start rethinking things a bit because (laughs) the school I was at was recruiting for slightly different things than what I wanted to do. I really wanted to do advertising brand management. um, And those just weren't the people recruiting on campus. So it was the first point where I started to rethink like, oh, Thinking back to those tests and what people had told me along the way, you know, what might be a good fit for me. And that's when I started thinking about law school and then eventually went to law school for the first time. Um, my path is very windy and I, I just like to share it in case anyone else um, can relate to it. But I completed a semester of law school in Indianapolis, which is where I am from. At that point in time, because I had this undergraduate business degree, I was thought, oh, hey, maybe I'll pair that with a legal degree And I'll be in a house counsel. And again, this is based on nothing because I have no lawyers in my family. Like nobody had ever really talked with me about legal
0: paths. You were at the University of Indiana for law then, right? For that first semester.
1: Yep, I I was. I was at Indiana University at the Indianapolis campus. Yep. And so I started school there. I completed a semester at that point in time. Just really wasn't for me. It wasn't doing it. I was looking around. Everyone else was super jazzed about everything we were doing. And I was just kind of like, meh. I don't know. I thought it was good uh, for me to take a step back. So I withdrew and just kind of, again, was reevaluating my options and then ultimately decided to come back a couple years later, but recognized that I really just needed a change of scenery and needed to to go to the big city, which is where I kind of always saw myself going. And so went to um, law school at DePaul, finished there, and then um, started the practice of law. And I, I really like what I do, and I've had some really good experiences along the way, but I don't know that there's ever been a time where You know, I was like, this is when I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Or honestly, even I'm so glad to be a lawyer. Many times I've looked at other people and thought, I'm so glad they're a lawyer and that we have lawyers, especially when I've been working in the access to justice community and I see the legal aid attorneys who do such amazing work. I I think those thoughts all the time. But I think for me, maybe just based on my background, I, I think sometimes I could approach the same problems from different backgrounds, not necessarily the law. So I do enjoy being a lawyer, but I don't know that I've had that magic moment that a lot of other people have had.
0: What was the moment that convinced you to go back to law school? Yeah, so
1: I distinctly remember between my two law school stints, I worked for a marketing incentive company. And for those unfamiliar with that, it's basically what we did was create incentive programs for a lot of sales Uh, departments at companies. So if you sell, this is a very basic example, but you sell X number of tires, for example, you win a trip to the Bahamas or whatever. So our company was in, we put together the actual program and then actually administered the trip. And, And traveling was something I had a great interest in. It's something I did a lot growing up. And so I was doing that and I thought, oh, maybe, you know, this could be a really good career path for me. But at the end of the day, it just Wasn't super fulfilling. I quickly learned that traveling for work is not the same as, you know, traveling for fun. And I just went back to thinking about my law school experience and seeing if there was a way I could rethink it. You know, were there parts of that experience that I enjoyed? And could I use those skills in a different practice setting, something other than in house counsel? And so I started to actually go back and do a little more research. And I remember at the time we had a bunch of family, a bunch of my cousins had recently moved to the Indianapolis area, which is where I was still at. And I was just having a lot of these great family experiences. And for whatever reason that triggered in my head, maybe something like family law or adoption, like maybe that could be something I could pursue. And so finally it was just opening up my mind to other paths that caused me to to go back And, and thinking about that in combination with just doing that in a different Uh, city was much more appealing. So that's what ultimately caused me to go
0: back. So when you got out of law school, you started practicing law, right? Yep. And were there things as just a brand new lawyer when you'd go to court or work with clients that just jumped out at you that you thought, oh, this could be better. Something, this could be a better client experience and how we're offering it. Yeah,
1: for sure. And I had a couple different practice setting perspectives. So right out of law school, I opened my own firm. And that was because it was 2009. And we were in the middle or or the beginning of the the Great Recession. And there really really were no other options. Like that was the option was to start your own practice. Um, But then subsequently, a couple years later, finally, it did have an opportunity to be an associate at a family law firm, which is what I wanted to do upon graduation. So from those two experiences though, I I quickly learned a few things. One, the the whole billable hour model and just how we bill clients wasn't working for, for a number of reasons. I could quickly tell that the average person just couldn't afford legal services in both practice settings, I had people of all different income levels, but I would say the average person had a, a decent paying job. This wasn't someone who had an hourly job or, or anything of those sorts. And even they were struggling to pay the bills and the bills were sizable. And then just the idea of having to track time and these six minute increments seemed a little bonkers to me. And then I noticed when I had my own firm, I did offer set fees for a few services. And by doing that, those bills were paid a lot faster, they were paid up front and they are pretty much paid right away. And I imagine it's because people do what the price was and they were able to get the money. So I was still charging hourly in both of those settings for the most part, but I could see early on that the billable hour was just problematic in a lot of ways. And then being in court, um, I'm sure this varies across jurisdictions and states, but in Chicago, um, if you're in family law, you're in court for a case at least once every other month, maybe even once every month. And oftentimes not much has happened in between those two times. So it just seemed silly and costly and inefficient to have to keep doing that. And then kind of paired with that was oftentimes opposing counsel, like there's just no movement, no communication, and then also just no direction. And it seemed like tools from the court to move things along. And so those were the things that kind of jumped out initially.
0: Did you ever talk about those things you observed with lawyers of more experience? And if so, what kind of response did you get? I think some lawyers would like to see change, but others are happy with how things are, or they think they're happy with how things are.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think I would complain about it to my colleagues that were uh, either my age or, you know, the same practice um, experience range. And they all agreed, but I think we were all just kind of in the thick of it. And it was just like, well, we just got to get through our, We just got to survive here. And when I would share it with more experienced practitioners, I would sometimes, you know, I think they would agree in part, but they were also like, well, but this is the way it's always been done. So yeah, it sucks. But what are we gonna do about it pretty much? And <laughs> so that's kind of how it was. And then I have a related story. So my friend, I have a friend who lives here in Denver who started a family law practice probably about eight years ago at this point. And so I met her when I lived in Denver um, a while back. and she was telling me about uh, law was a second career for her, and she really wanted to build a practice, a family law practice that she would hire and could afford. And so by doing that, she wanted to do things like only offer set fees, unbundle services, you know, things that were um, still pretty revolutionary at the time. And she did that and she was connected with um, a more experienced attorney when she was in Denver. And she's really excited about it because she wanted you know, mentorship and just was excited to be a bigger part of the profession and met with the attorney. And the, as soon as she explained her idea of what she wanted her practice to be, he told her she was going to fail, like just flat out, <laughs> which is what I think a lot of people hear. I mean, that's, I've been in a lot of rooms where I've been, um, you know, trying to help lawyers bill differently and use limit scope and things like that. And we get pushback a lot and it's too bad because it's really unfounded. And what we have found is that lawyers who do offer these types of services and do things differently, um, anecdotally, the response has been really positive.
0: Okay. And tell me what prompted you to switch from uh, private practice to uh, working with the Chicago Bar Foundation? Between
1: graduation and by the time I was an associate at the small family law firm that I was talking about, there were probably two or three years in between. And during that time, you know, I was starting to practice and get a sense of what practice was like. And honestly, this was the first time for me. Because again, I didn't know anything about being a lawyer and I did have some really good experiences um, in law school, but I was just starting to understand what the practice of law actually looked like. And I was, it just really wasn't for me. I really enjoyed actually working with people. I enjoyed having client meetings and I could tell I really enjoyed helping people, but I did not enjoy litigation at all. I didn't like being in court. And I just, I think I've just had a fundamental problem with how the family law system was set up. I just knew there had to be a better way to actually resolve these problems. And so I felt like I was just never helping anyone. And at the same time, I never had an interest in any other practice area. So it really caused me to stop and think, is this what I really want to do? And if not, what are the other paths out there? And I didn't know the answer to that latter question. But that's something I started to explore. And thankfully, the attorney or the the woman who owned the family law attorney I was very honest with her about this, and she gave me a lot of space to explore these other opportunities, which was really, really nice. And I had become more involved in the Chicago Bar Association Young Lawyer section at the time, and I think I was co-chairing a committee and, you know, just going to the events and just trying to see what's out there and meet some new people. And through that, I learned that the CBA, the Chicago Bar Association, they had an opening for an MCLE coordinator, And so while I wasn't wild about CLE, I thought, you know, this could be a really interesting opportunity and a good way, again, to like continue to get out there and just explore different paths. And so I interviewed for it. I got it. And then it was shortly thereafter, that's when I started to learn that the Chicago Bar Foundation existed. I started to read more about it and it sounded really good to me. But I have to be honest, like I didn't really know what access to justice meant. Like in my head at the time, I think it just meant pro bono. Like that was a very mm. obvious example to me. And I had recently joined a young professionals board at a legal aid organization. So legal aid, you know, pro bono, that's kind of what I thought it meant, but I didn't really know much beyond that. Um, and then I just got lucky about a week into my job at the CBI, I happened to attend an event sitting right next to me was Bob Glaze, who's the executive director of the Chicago Bar Foundation. And it was a great opportunity to ask those questions and, see if there are ways I could get involved. And there were, and I helped out with a few projects over the year. And then, yeah, roughly a year later, I just got lucky. There was a position that opened up and I interviewed for it and I
0: got it. And the rest is history. Tell me about your somewhat new job. It's not super new, but you got it in the past year, right? Yes. Yep. I'm about five weeks in. (laughs) Oh, so then it is new. Yeah, for sure. Tell me about what you're doing
1: with IELTS. So what I'm doing at IELTS, there's a lot of similarities between the position I was at at the CBF when I left and what I'm now doing at IELTS. So at IELTS, I'm the director of legal services and the profession, which I know sounds super broad. But one of the main, I would say, buckets of work that IELTS has been focused on and that I am now focused on is legal innovation, uh, regulatory innovation regulatory reform. And the reason for that is, is all the reasons we do our access to justice work, right? Like the statistics that say, I think in our justice needs study, it was 16% of people who had a legal issue engaged lawyers, which is not great. Uh, We also know from the National Center for State Courts, I think it's 76% of cases, civil cases in state courts have at least one self represented litigant on one side. So also not great. And then we have these rules of professional conduct and the unauthorized practice of law that say that only lawyers can provide these services. And clearly, there's just a huge, huge mismatch. There's a lot of need, but not, a, not enough lawyers who can deliver those services in an effective and affordable way. And so I think there are a lot of things that need to change uh, in order to close what we call the justice gap. But one of the ones that IELTS has been working on for a while and one we think that could make a huge impact is changing those ethics rules and the unauthorized practice of law in a way
0: um, that will allow more people to deliver services to people who need it. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to ask you some more about what you think are some creative ways to help people who need legal services, but maybe can't get it or don't know how to get the help. We'll be right back.
1: Mention legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software?
0: Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot c-c, and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Jessica Bednars. She's a former family law attorney who now works for IELTS as its director of legal services in the profession. Jessica, I want to go back to something you said before the break when you were talking about changing regulation regarding who can provide legal representation. And I'm curious if when you were doing family law, did you see a uh, room and space for maybe someone without a JD to provide representation in family law?
1: Yeah, I think definitely in a couple of different ways, potentially. So, for example, at the family law firm that I worked at, we had a really great paralegal. And actually, thinking back to um, law school, I had a clerkship where I was working at another family law firm, and they also had some really great paralegals who, in my mind, knew more than I did, frankly, (laughs) about the practice of law and how things are done at that point. And so one of the projects we have at IELTS is all about allied legal professionals and how can we maybe relax the unauthorized practice of law rules to let these professionals operate in different ways. So that could look a lot of different ways. That might mean, you know, paralegal still working for a law firm, but having more responsibility, like maybe they could just handle those status calls that I went to and where nothing, you know, substantive happened, but they could be billed out at a lower rate so it would cost less to the client. I think going even further down the chain, I would say that there's a real opportunity for um, people like librarians and people working at organizations in various communities. There, these are trusted sources where uh, people could go to just get some basic information. And again, there could be opportunities to license some of these individuals in some way where they can just do a little bit more, Uh, maybe just offer um, some very basic legal advice and or maybe they could just help them fill out some basic forms. So I think there's actually a lot of room in the family law space to have other legal providers providing these services, complementary to
0: lawyers. We still need lawyers too. (laughs) Right. Do you think just the experience of starting your practice in 2009 and those few years after that, Economically, that time was so hard on some people, certainly in Chicago, where you were at the time. And do you think coming out of law school in the Great Recession really influenced your views on what could help consumers in regards to legal services?
1: Yeah, I would say in part um, because I graduated in 2009 and that really was we really were into the, the Great Recession at that point honestly, I was just trying to survive. I think me and all my mm-hmm. my classmates, you know, we were part of that. I think they called it the lost generation of, yeah. of law yeah. grads like that. We were right at the front end of that. So honestly, for me, for the first two to three years, it was just trying to get work and, and pay your bills. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I honestly, I didn't, I think maybe a couple years in is when I said I I finally started to do things like join a a young professionals board for legal aid organization and really then start to learn more about access to justice and things like that. But for the first couple of years, like it wasn't even on my mind because I was just trying to survive myself. But Mm -hmm. um, it was very informative because, you know, if I am trying to survive and I have two degrees at that point, I can't imagine what it would be like for the average person. And again, me trying to still learn the legal system um, and these people who maybe can't afford a lawyer and have to do it on their own, I, I, it definitely helped me empathize with, with them in that way.
0: And with your career so far and with your work researching and problem-solving, legal services delivery, what do you think are the biggest changes you've seen in the process profession since 2009? I mean, there's many states that are considering alternatives for practice. Yep. And there's a lot more technology. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. 2009 at this point is so long ago. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> So more recently, definitely um, changes in regulatory reform or innovation. We've seen that happen in Arizona and Utah with respect to um, in Arizona, they lift elimination of rule 5.4. Utah, they have the regulatory sandbox where It's a controlled environment where they're letting law firms and other legal professionals in to develop innovative business models. We have those allied legal professionals that I was talking about, um, which is helping people who are not lawyers, you know, get certified and offer some form of limited legal services. But then also things like, you know, with the pandemic, you know, thankfully now we have more remote uh, appearance options in a lot of jurisdictions. Um, And hopefully that stays. I don't know that that's great for... Um, everything, maybe not trials, maybe not contested hearings, but again, for these basic status hearings, it's really great to have that option. It really cuts down on the cost of legal services and makes it more accessible for a lot of people. Um, but even things like, again, if we're going all the way back to the 2009, what I've seen, I guess maybe because of my practice experience, is we've seen a lot more people coming out of law schools hanging their own shingle. And paired with that, we've had the incubator movement. And by pairing those two things together, we've started to see more movement with respect to offering more unbundled legal services, I think, across the country. Also, starting to see more set fee pricing versus billable hour. And certainly, within that movement, you're seeing um, lawyers really embrace tech to to become more efficient on the back end, to automate documents, maybe even productize legal services. But then also on the front end, using that for engagement, um, even just basic things like you know putting a, a calendar link on your homepage so people can just schedule consultations at their convenience and not at yours. So I don't know, we've seen quite a bit of change. Hopefully that'll continue.
0: I wanted to talk briefly about your tech show session, which is going to be um, about designing a good experience for clients. And I am curious too, how your background is starting uh, in 2009. How has that taught you? And just through the years, how have you seen What are some things lawyers can do to make it a good experience for consumers and find a way to meet them with what they need and what they can afford and handle?
1: Yeah, I think the good news is is there's a lot of opportunity to do things and they don't have to be revolutionary or, or huge by any means. And they don't have to even involve tech. So thinking back to 2009, when I was a younger lawyer, it seemed that the way we were trained and the CLEs that I attended and just how things were is that we would hang our shingle and then people would come to us. And while that probably was the case at one point in time, that's just not the case anymore. Um, Consumers are much more sophisticated that nowadays they have a lot more options and we really uh, need to do what I think people do or businesses do in a lot of other industries is really start with the client and work backwards. And what that means is as best as you can, like take off your lawyer hat and try to think about, you know, who's your target client? And by that, I mean, if you could just serve this one client all day, every day, who would it be? And really just getting deep about where do they live? What are their needs? How do they consume information? What are their view of lawyers? Things like that. And just really try to put yourself in their shoes and then try to understand what it is that they need and value and are looking for a law firm from a law firm when they have a legal problem that needs to be solved. And so that's what our tech show is session is really about. It's about using um, this concept called design thinking, which is just a five step process to do exactly that really starting from the client's point of view and then kind of using that information and creating tests for it and then eventually building out a service, whatever that service looks like. Um, So it's all about just staying client centric. And so some examples, again, that I've seen over the years and specifically through incubator programs is things like not billing by the hour and offering a set fee. That is something that is very attainable to every lawyer. It doesn't involve tech. One of the, the toolkits that I worked on at the Chicago Bar Foundation is a pricing toolkit. That's a whole outline of how to do this. It gives you a framework for it step by step. And, you know, you could just start with one service, you know, something like that. And also with unbundled services, you don't need to change your whole practice overnight. You can really just start with one service and offer a set fee or one service and unbundle it so that consumers who ultimately just really want options and who are on a budget can see that, you know, I can do all the work for you or, you know, maybe you're sophisticated enough to do some of this work on your own. So I'm also going to offer this in an unbundled way. So I would say those are two really um, easy examples. But at the end of the day, if, you know, I, if they have those bracelets, if it could be like, what would my client do? Like, <laughs> put that on your wrist and um, I, what's, I can't think I can't think of what the acronym is off the top of my head. But maybe like if you could just if you could just think about that every time you're doing something that would just
0: go along. What way. does the client watch? So WWCW, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> you might be onto something there, Jessica. <laughs> uh, on that note, from your uh, time of representing consumers and working with lawyers who represent consumers and studying consumer issues, what is a lawyer's, what tends to be their biggest misconception about what clients want?
1: From my experience, what I've observed, I think one of them has to do with billing, Still to this day, I hear a lot of lawyers talk about how clients are buying their time. And that's just simply not the case. Honestly, if I could buy time, like if time is something you could buy, that would be amazing, right? But that doesn't exist. And that's not actually what the average legal consumer is looking for. They're looking for a solution to their legal problem. And what they would love, love, love to have paired with that is just good client service. And good client service, that's something they can identify because that's... Customer service is something they're very familiar with. So that's ultimately what we what they want. And so I hear a lot of lawyers talk about their time and then they tie their billing model to it. And it's just, it's not aligned with what consumers want. So I think I think shifting from a time-based mindset to a value-based mindset would go a long way because then you're thinking more again about what those clients value. In addition to the legal solution, which probably includes expertise from you. Um, and your experience, they want things like convenience, and affordability, and certainty. So just thinking about things in that way, I think would go a long way. I think a lot of lawyers still also believe that every legal consumer wants full representation. And I don't think that's the case either. I think a lot of people do, but there are quite a few people who just want to pay for what they need, because that's what they do in every other industry. And so again, kind of putting yourself not only in your target market shoes, but just Think about yourself when you're in these other industries and consuming services elsewhere. How do you like to consume services? And is that, is your firm doing the same thing? And if it's not, you know, it's it's very easy and honorable to borrow best practices from other industries. So those are the two things I think that come to mind most.
0: Okay. And if you're a lawyer who, say up to now, you haven't thought much about legal innovation and new ways to do things, but you're interested and you want to change that, what's the way that you could get started? Yeah, I love this question.
1: And so I want to start out by saying it's never too late to get started and uh, it doesn't have to be a big change. Again, I think every time you want to make a change, it's I think it's best to start small. And two things before I give some more concrete examples I think a lot of times when people think of innovation, they immediately think of tech, um, which is certainly a subset of innovation, but it's not all of it. And then also that something needs to be revolutionary. And that simply does not have to be the case either. So after dispelling those two myths, I would think about what subsets of innovation maybe are most interesting to you. And I can give some examples. And then also, how do you like to digest information and learn? Because there are a ton of different ways you can do this. And so, for example, if you're a podcaster, uh, maybe you are because you're listening to this podcast. If that's how you like to consume information, I do too. There are tons of podcasts out there that are talking about legal innovation. I know, for example, I so I have a a business with someone and it's called a different practice. And my business partner offers uh, a podcast. So I would check that out if you're a solo small firm attorney looking to do things differently. Um, We talk about some innovation-related things there. Bob Ambrosi, I know, has a podcast where he's always talking about legal innovations. They might be a little more tech-related. So if you're a tech person, that might be something to gravitate towards. Um, There's a lawyer named Matthew Kerbis who has a podcast about subscription billing. So again, there there are a bunch of different options. So I would just think about what innovation is interesting to you and go that route. Um, IELTS actually has a redesigning legal webinar series that takes place every three months. Uh, It's in partnership with the ABA Center for Innovation, the ABA Standing Committee on the Delivery of Legal Services, the ABA Center for Professional Responsibility, and then Legal Hackers. Um, And that's a super interesting series. I'm obviously a little biased there, but um, you can find all the recordings of that on the Isles website, and the next one is coming up in March. So if you like to consume information that way, that might be a really great way to get started. There are a ton of newsletters out there, If you want to go really all in, uh, Suffolk University has a Legal Innovation and Technology Certificate. It's a non-credited certificate program, but it looks super interesting. So that's a little, you know, on the bigger side. But there are so many different ways, I think, that you can start to learn about innovation. And I think once you get started, you'll quickly learn what you're gravitating towards. You'll start learning about some other innovators in the space and follow them. Like if you're on social media, start following people. So I think there are a bunch of ways to get started.
0: All right, Jessica, that's all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was really fun. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.